Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We do have a clinical athlete forum where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports, med, rehab, and performance. So to join the forum, a potential listing on the directory, all upcoming seminars and events, go to clinicalathlete.com. The podcast itself can be found on uh, that website, YouTube, and iTunes, where you can leave a review, and hopefully very soon, platforms like Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, all the fancy ones will be rolling on those too, so stay tuned for that. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport, and I'm joined by Michael Ray, who is a doctor of chiropractic and owner of Shenandoah Valley Performance Clinic and CrossFit Callisto in Harrisonburg, Virginia. What's up, Mike? How's it going, Quinn? I usually ah, usually get it. It was, it was close, but you can also nix CrossFit Callisto because we'll just be Shenandoah Valley Performance Clinic That's starting awesome. August 1st. Oh, yeah. As I was typing it, I was wondering because I haven't really seen that name for a while, but I was like, ah, I'll rep it and then I'm wrong. Um, we, we literally just announced it yesterday. So. Okay, cool. And we're also joined by a very special guest. Jared Hall, who's a doctor of physical therapy in Fort Worth, Texas. Jared's actually going to do two clinical athlete webinars for us. One on August 6th. The topic is pain neuroscience education for the difficult patient. And the second is August 27th. The topic is adhesive capsulitis, a.k.a. frozen shoulder. So it was a no-brainer to have him on the show and talk shop. How are you doing, Jared? Thanks so much for being on. Yeah, man. Uh, I appreciate you guys having me on here. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I'm one of uh, your six listeners that's pretty regularly tuning in. Yeah. In, in fact, I was just listening to you guys on my drive home from the clinic today. So uh, it, it's pretty cool to get to come on here and chat with you guys. Oh, awesome. Uh, I appreciate that, man. Can you, speaking of six listeners, can you tell all six listeners a little bit about yourself? What's brought you to this point in your career? This well, low point the- on the clinical athlete <laughs> podcast. Sorry, right, go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's only up from here, right? Yeah. So, so to the other five guys out there, uh, like, like Quinn said, I'm a Fort Worth. I'm a physical therapist in Fort Worth, Texas. I have been born and raised in Texas. Uh, have never really lived anywhere else. And the natural progression, obviously, was for me to go to grad school in Texas, and that's what led me to Fort Worth. Uh, I went to the University of North Texas Health and Science Center, and uh, I got my DPT there about uh, a little over four years ago now. So I, I guess you could consider me still pretty young in the profession. Um, uh, I run an outpatient orthopedic clinic in the Southwest Fort Worth area, uh, super general clinic where we see everything from, uh, you know, 12 year olds with little eager elbow to like I have a 93-year-old patient status post total hip replacement right now. So we're running a really wide gamut, and uh, we're one of the few practices that isn't attached to a hospital system or a physician group. So um, that's one of the reasons that we get a big mix, and uh, we kind of get some of the patients that have quote-unquote failed therapy at other places because maybe they're a little bit, um, you know, understaffed or overbooked and that sort of thing. They're maybe not getting that, that kind of quality, quality care that, that sometimes more uh, complex patients need. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I, I spend a little bit of time at the University of North Texas Health and Science Center in their orthopedics coursework, doing some lab instructing and a little bit of lecturing. And I, I kind of come in and do guest lecturing for a couple of days to kind of just give them a super fast overview into the whole modern understanding of pain where we're at right now and a little bit of pain neuroscience education, that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, that hasn't expanded as much as I'd like it to. I'd like to get an entire semester course going, but uh, there's not room in the curriculum yet. But hopefully with the uh, House of Delegates vote out there in Florida to implement the International Association for the Study of Pain's curriculum into the DPT program, it was a unanimous decision. So hopefully we'll see a lot more programs moving that way. Yeah, I think it's all moving in the right direction. It's just, it's just slow, you know, like anything else. And it's one of the problems is on the state level, every, every board is different. So you have to kind of jump through the same hoops over and over and over again like that. But there's reciprocity. So that's awesome, man. And with the topic of, of neuroscience, with that being so complex, and we've talked about it on this show, I want to, we've got kind of two pop topics to touch on that you're going to be speaking more in depth on in the webinars. But one is 
pain neuroscience for the difficult patient. And the other is adhesive capsulitis. And I think if we start with the frozen shoulder talk, it'll, it'll kind of give context then to how we can educate that type of patient and for the clinicians who listen as well, you know, how, how the rehab process works. So in regards to quote unquote, AKA adhesive, adhesive capsulitis, AKA frozen shoulder, can you define that for us? What is that diagnosis? What does that mean? Oh, man, the super good question. Uh, the the honest answer is I don't think anybody actually knows what adhesive capsulitis or, or frozen shoulder is to date. I mean, we have we have some theories, and you know, we have some histological data, and we have um, kind of some metabolic metabolic correlations, but we don't really know what frozen shoulder is. It, it was first described in the late 1800s as something like. Uh, periarticular arthritis of the shoulder or something weird like that. And then in the 30s, Dr. Codman, everybody knows the Codman exercises, came up with the idea of uh, frozen shoulder. And then in the 40s, there was another guy who reclassified it as adhesive capsulitis. And it's kind of stuck ever since then with the diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis. But uh, when, you know, when we look at it, it, it's technically a clinical diagnosis of exclusion most of the time. So when you have somebody that might be presenting with frozen shoulder, the typical standard approach is to order an x-ray to rule out the, the likelihood of a tumor or a locked dislocation of the shoulder or super advanced OA that would be limiting the true range of motion of the shoulder. And once that stuff has been ruled out, and the shoulder follows a pattern of being limited in both active and passive range of motion, it's kind of given the diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis at, at that point. But I think that it gets a little bit hairy after that because we don't, we don't have any good clinical, any good reliable clinical exam for truly determining active versus passive range of motion and, and, and thing that can be kind of reliably assessed between me and you and the next guy down the road and the physician down the road. We don't have any standardized protocol for adhesive capsulitis that, that we've developed yet. So there's probably a lot of people that get overdiagnosed and there's probably quite a few misdiagnoses as well. Is it associated with some type of structural change or, or histological change or what's actually going on there when the patient's losing range of motion? So it, it seems like in true adhesive capsulitis, and I say true ones that have been verified with actual histological examination and, and surgical, you know, arthroscopy where, where they actually look at the joint, you see kind of some thickening and some increased metabolic activity in the middle glenohumeral, glenohumeral ligament, the inferior glenohumeral ligament, the uh, coracoacromial ligament, the rotator interval. So some of those those structures kind of on the anterior aspect of, of the shoulder joint capsule, you see some some changes histological, histologically that look a lot like uh, Defutrin's contracture. And there's even a couple of research studies that show that there might even be a big connection metabolically between those two, saying that, you know, roughly 50 to 70% of people that have a diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis also either have or will have Defutrin's contracture at some point in their life as well. So there seems to be some sort of really similar metabolic mechanism that leads to that. Uh, I mean, we know that adhesive capsulitis seems to present itself more in maybe a little bit more in women, some some data is kind of challenging that, and kind of in midlife, for age 40 to age 60, it, there's a dramatically higher rate uh, or incidence in, in, in people with metabolic conditions like diabetes and uh, thyroid conditions, as well as, interestingly, cardiovascular conditions as well. So we, we see this kind of global systemic inflammatory process seems to be pretty strongly linked with the development of adhesive capsulitis. Is that about all we have in regards to correlation for prospectively? I mean, do we have any type of screen to, to try to get the people who are maybe more at risk or like what's causing adhesive capsulitis? Do we have any information in that regard or is it more of just a reactive thing? It comes on, we don't know why it happens and we just try to treat it the best we can. I mean, to the best of my knowledge and to the best of everything that I've read in the literature, 
it kind of just comes on and we don't really have a good idea of why it comes on. I mean, we separate it into primary and, and secondary adhesive capsulitis and primary is, is just that out of the blue, what the hell it just came on. And then secondary adhesive capsulitis might be due to a specific injury or surgical intervention to the shoulder or, or some of those metabolic conditions as well, where we, we seem like we can link it to some of those metabolic conditions, but we, we really have no good rationale for why it comes on, but it seems to definitely come on after some sort of inflammatory insult to the shoulder or some sort of global inflammatory process throughout the body, kind of that chronic low-grade inflammation that it's kind of a buzzword right now that everybody's talking about with, with systemic health. Mike, what are your thoughts on that, on the, on the diagnosis itself and the lack thereof maybe of the ability for us to screen for it and, and predict it? Yeah, I think Jared did a good job explaining that. That's uh, pretty much what I've seen as well in the literature. Uh, we don't have good diagnostic criteria for it. It's usually an exclusionary-based diagnosis. Um, you will see it in like post-op shoulder cases. Um, and it just presents with this, obviously, typical case has uh, symptomatology of like pain, functional deficits, loss of range of motion, um, usually extreme losses of global range of motion in all directions for the shoulder. Um, and we just don't have a great understanding of the ideology of it. So it's basically, all right, well, let's see how we can get this shoulder moving and start uh, hopefully uh, reintroducing strength movements, improving conditioning and getting people back to doing what they want to do. Yeah, that's my experience as well. I, I have one on my caseload right now, a gentleman with what's been diagnosed as, as frozen shoulder. And he just he was a 50 year old guy and like generally active, but not like crazy active. It was like, you know, moving weights and his shoulders were fine. And then he had nasal surgery and he took he was ordered to take like a month off from the gym. And then within that month, his shoulder stopped moving. There was that, yeah. that was it. You know, that was the history. And it's, it, you know, it's one of those things like Jared, in regards to presentation, what are we typically seeing from a clinical examination? What's the presentation of frozen shoulder commonly? Well, I, I think that depends on what what point in the frozen shoulder you get get the patient in. You know, if they're early on, it can look a lot different, right? It, than if they're in the middle of it or towards the end of the or towards the later stages of the condition. I don't want to say end stage because we used to think that frozen shoulder had a natural history and it just kind of went away on its own. But there's some recent evidence really coming out to say that we were absolutely wrong about that. There was a guy named, uh, oh, was it Dr. Uh, Wang or Wong, or I think it was Wong last year published uh, an updated study that looked back at some of the data that kind of misrepresented the idea of a natural regression of frozen shoulder over the course of a couple of years because they, they misused some data and, and put in some people with rotator cuff tears and subacromial pain syndrome and that sort of stuff that, that did get better over the course of time. But most of the data shows that 40, 50, even 60% of people two, three, four, five years later will still have range of motion deficits and still have issues with that shoulder. So that creates a big problem because if patients, if, if, if the first line provider says, oh, yeah, you've got a frozen shoulder. This is just going to get better over time. That could lead to pretty significant issues if somebody's like, well, this is this is just going to resolve. So I'm not going to use the shoulder because it hurts, which leads to it getting stiffer, which leads to them losing function, which leads to kind of a pseudo immobilization, which we know that all the problems that occur with immobilization, right? When in their increased risk of probably problems down the road with immobilization from a from a tissue histology standpoint and then from even a even a cortical smudging or a brain mapping standpoint of of self immobilization. So and, and then if physical therapists are, and chiropractors and people that are managing this condition are saying the same thing, they might just say, you know, hey, I'm going to stretch you really hard for a couple of weeks and, you know, eventually this is going to get better and you're going to be fine. You don't have to worry about it. That doesn't motivate a patient to stay consistent on, on a program that's actually going to get them large benefits and, and help them in the long term actually achieve their full range of motion and function back. But to cycle all the way back around to your question, sorry, I didn't mean to get <laughs> on a tangent. Um, you know, if you catch somebody early on in the condition, they're usually going to be extremely painful. They're going to have just, just a boatload of guarding around that shoulder. It, it early on, you know, there's a rand just, it starts randomly and there's a progressive loss of range of motion with 
a heavy degree of pain, which seems to be when it's in the heat of the inflammatory process that's really that's really causing a lot of the uh, tightening down or inflammation of the the ligaments and the, the capsule around the shoulder. And, and then, you know, there's still a traditional staging process that we're kind of going by maybe a little bit, the, the freezing, frozen, and thawing out stage. So if you catch them in the freezing stage, they're going to be pretty painful and they're gonna just, there's going to be progressively um, reducing range of motion, active and passive. And then once they get into kind of that frozen stage, it seems like pain levels drop down a little bit and it doesn't hurt with most activities until you try to stretch it to its end range. But this is the point when it's going to be the most restricted in their active and passive range of motion. And then that quote unquote thawing stage would be they're, they're relatively minimally painful and they have a lot of their range of motion back, but maybe it's not all the way back and they can get a little bit more aggressive with their stretching. They can get a little bit more aggressive with uh, strengthening and that sort of stuff, because it seems like maybe that initial inflammatory process has, has died out a little bit. So it can, it can look really different based on when you catch them in the course of the disease. Are you encouraging movement throughout the entire stage, even when inflammation and, and or pain is at its highest and kind of that beginning stage? Or is that maybe, you know, we may be getting in now to the, the pain discussion is like depends on the patient. But in general, are you encouraging movement as soon as possible and as much as they can tolerate? So I think that's a super good question because if I if I reflect back to how I was taught to manage frozen shoulder, it was get in there and stretch the hell out of their shoulder, right? They have all these adhesions within the shoulder and you need to go in and break them up. You need to get that scar tissue out of there. You need to make make that shoulder move. The reason that it hurts is because there's adhesions, not necessarily because uh, anybody understood anything about the complexity of pain and <laughs> and what might be going on, but I'm definitely encouraging as much movement as possible without pushing the patient too hard. And we have to, with that particular patient, we have to kind of discuss what degree of discomfort is reasonable for them and they feel okay with and they feel confident with. And if they are working on some exercises, they're, they're doing some controlled eccentrics, they're doing some passive stretching, they're starting into a little bit of strengthening in those early stages. If it's flaring them up for two or three or four days to where they can't move their arm afterwards, we're, we're not helping anybody, right? Because any benefit that we could have made or that we might have made with that initial bout of exercise is completely diminished and taken away with the immobilization afterwards. Um, and what's super interesting, uh, there's a there's a thesis in press right now, and actually the first this thesis is from a, a researcher named Louise Holman, and she's out of the University of Sydney, I think. And uh, somehow I got my hands on her thesis a couple of months ago, and uh, she's got two articles in press out of her, the out of her thesis that look at um, range of motion while awake and range of motion under anesthesia in patients that have been diagnosed with frozen shoulder. And you see a dramatic increase in their range of motion when you when you put somebody under anesthesia. I think she had a case series of just five patients and the patient with the least amount of range of motion gained under anesthesia was 44 degrees of flexion and shoulder flexion. And the patient with the most range of motion gained was 110 degrees. So you can range this person to 45 degrees before it was a hard infill or a, a stiff infill. You put them under anesthesia and all of a sudden they're up to 155 degrees of uh, shoulder flexion range of motion, which shows that there's a huge protective aspect to frozen shoulder because it is quite painful. So if you're overly aggressively pushing somebody into a high amount of pain, you could be facilitating a huge amount of that protective response that continues to limit what you're doing. And if you're stretching someone really hard with that, you're not stretching any of the, the, the structures that seem to be um, less extensible or contracted. You're really just pushing against protective muscle guarding. Mike, what are your thoughts on that pushing into discomfort? Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. Um, just because the evidence is kind of shaky on us conclusively saying like, this is a tissue structure issue. Obviously there's some, some protective mechanisms at play. The patient's going to have some fear avoidance and apprehension. So regardless of whether the joint can actually get into the particular position we're trying to force or not, um, it's not a good idea to make that happen. But usually the expectation I set is 
this is likely going to be uncomfortable. The difference is, is what's tolerable versus not tolerable, and that's completely individualistic and, and based on what the person's willing to allow. Um, like completely anecdotally, I tend to not personally pass a range of motion in these shoulders. I usually let the patient do it to themselves and then let them kind of dictate how much they're wanting to push into it versus me trying to force them into positions they may not be ready for. Yeah, I, I'm kind of the same. I've The guarding thing is definitely real, and I've tried to passively tug, especially like as a student feeling that, and they just they just fight back. It's like you're not oh, yeah. going anywhere, and then they just get, you know, you're, you're – you're kind of losing ground uh, from a therapeutic alliance standpoint as well, you know, and I think, Jared, I was actually going to ask, you mentioned the uh, the change in range of motion under anesthesia. Do you have experience with patients getting surgically manipulated? So I, I do have a pretty decent amount of experience with that. I wouldn't say that I'm an expert because luckily I've been able to, over the last couple of years of practice, um, gently nudge my patients away from going through that procedure, A, because it's expensive, B, because it's extremely painful for a couple of weeks afterwards, and C, because the research doesn't support it. I mean, if you look at the research on MUAs, you see that on average, there's a there's about an 8 to, eight to 10 degree increase in range of motion. So if you're looking at the risk of going under anesthesia, the risk of rotator cuff tear, the risk of labral tear, the risk of humeral fracture, for eight to 10 degrees plus the cost financially, screw that. Like, why would you ever subject yourself to that? So I kind of, I tell people straight up and for the most part, they're like, yeah, I think I'm going to not do that. And I'm going to keep working on this myself. Yeah. That's been my experience. I, uh, not that many, maybe, maybe two or maybe three that I can remember. And if people maybe are not familiar, this is surgical manipulation, you know, they, they put the person under and they just, crank their shoulder. I mean, they just, they just push it past that stiff point. Um, and they come back to me as my experience, they come back pissed. They are not happy. They're in more pain than when they went in their range of motion. Like you said is less because they're guarding so much now. And it's like, now we're spending the next three or four weeks, like recovering from that surgery to get to the point that they were. And then, like you said, is eight to 10 degrees. First of all, is that even, is that measurement error? You know, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure that I just stole Mike's thunder on that one because he, I don't have great, I don't have great. Mike, do you have any experience with, with your patients getting that procedure? The only experience I've had with it, um, I've not seen anyone post MUA, but the experience I do have with it is usually someone will have gone to see someone, uh, for a little bit and they were like, yeah, this hasn't been improving. So they're telling me, if this doesn't get better in X number of weeks or months, then they're rec highly recommending MUA. And that's usually when I see the case. Um, and so then I just like Jared try very hard to be like, you know, look, this is what the evidence says on it. It's not that great. I don't typically recommend going through with that. Obviously it's your choice, but odds are we can get some decent improvement with this towards your functional goals and accomplishments and mitigating uh, symptoms. It's just going to take some time. Um, and that's a difficult, you know, question to answer how long that's going to take. But yeah, it, it just doesn't look like a solid option thus far. Well, I think even, you know, to cycle back around, we didn't we didn't talk about this earlier, but traditionally we thought that there were adhesions and there was right. scar tissue and there were connections within the shoulder joint capsule that were limiting the range of motion. But if we know now that it seems like, hey, maybe this is an inflammatory process, it seems like, hey, maybe this joint is more kind of developed a, a pseudo contracture or like a, a kind of a contracture, the whole idea of a manipulation under anesthesia doesn't even make sense anymore because you're not breaking anything loose. And if you do dramatically increase range of motion, it's because you just tore someone's capsule up, right? You just, you just induced a significant injury to their shoulder if they did actually gain a lot of structural joint improvement or joint space. I mean, the uh, it just doesn't really make sense with what we know about how soft tissue deforms and responds to stress. So oddly enough, I was like, I was trying to find the Wong study that you mentioned. It was by Wong on the, um, I'm blanking on the title of it. I just had it pulled up. But it's basically like going through the natural history of it and how our narrative is probably not correct, but they, they self-resolve on their own. But while looking for that, I came across a study by Sue et al. That's a systematic review and meta-analysis of MRI features 
for a diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis of the shoulder. I've not had a chance to read it. It literally just got released on July the 5th. So that'll be oh, interesting. Yeah. I, haven't, yeah. I haven't seen that one yet. Maybe I, mean, I might need to revamp my presentation a little bit. Yeah, I'll, have to say, I'll send it to you. I'll take a look at it. So I think that's kind of a good segue into setting expectations, which, which Mike alluded to and you've alluded to at this point as well, because we don't have a good explanation of why this occurs. We don't really know what it is. And so whatever we're, you know, telling the patients anything beyond that is kind of conjecture. So then it's like, what is a realistic goal? What, what are realistic expectations? What type of prognosis are we giving the patient on day one or the first week or like that first month? Jared, how do you establish that with the patient? You know, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be different patient to patient, of course, but I mean, I can't overemphasize enough how much really educating a patient on what adhesive capsulitis is, what we do know about it, and what we don't know about it, what we usually see in the course of care, how long it's going to take, what they can expect through the stages, that a lot of it is actually muscle guarding, that um, a lot of it is could actually be true structural changes to the shoulder that, that will take a really, really long time to actually make changes to. So they have to be consistent. They have to be diligent. They have to be bought into a program of consistent, uh, you know, exercise to, to take control over this and to actually regain the range of motion. And, um, you know, it's, it's so incredibly important to set up a patient for positive expectations or realistic expectations, uh, from, from day one, if, if they walk in and they have adhesive capsulitis, Honestly, my, my, my subjective is going to be, you know, a, a huge portion of everything that we do that day, just kind of figuring out what they do know, what they don't know, what their ideal expectations are, what their realistic expectations are, what um, they've been told about the condition, what their doc said about the condition, when they have to follow up, what's expected of them when they follow up, um, how they feel about the pain, how they feel about what's limiting what's being limited in their life. And then, you know, trying to find targets within everything that they tell me to direct my education. So the, the way that I look at a subjective examination with a patient is, is literally trying to get every bit of information out of them I possibly can. So I can have a target for directing my education. So I'm not just spewing random crap all over, all over the place. They don't care about, you know, the histological changes in their shoulders. So I'm not going to tell them about that, or they don't, they don't care about this, or they don't care about that. I want to find the things that matter to them so I can direct my education and, and set realistic expectations and realistic goals that, that are relevant to that particular person in front of me. What if they're pressing you for a timeline? It's, I get it a lot, you know, well, how long is this going to take? They care about the prognosis. It's like you said, the diagnosis is just kind of a it's a fancy term that they don't know what that means, but like, when am I going to be back? When is this going to go away? Are you staying a hundred feet away from giving them any type of number to shoot for as, as a measure of success? Are you gauging their progress more on functional milestones? So that's another good question. I think that a lot of times I'll ask them, well, you know, how long has this been going on? When did you first notice your shoulder hurting? And they're like, well, you know, it was, it was six months ago. And I'll say, well, we have a lot of research on frozen shoulder. We, we have a ton of data that says that this thing on the very, very shortest end could last nine months and it could last up to two years if, if you don't necessarily stay diligent about working towards it, you know, steadily. I was like, I, I think that you seem like the type of person that is motivated to really, you know, attack this and do a good job with it. So I don't expect that it's going to take you two years, but I can't promise you that you're going to be better at nine months either. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the the stuff that you want to get back to. You know, if you only want to put a, uh, a glass in the top shelf and that only requires 140 degrees of shoulder flexion, you might be feeling pretty good in a few, a couple of months from now. But if you're looking to do overhead shoulder press or something like that, we might need a little bit more time. So it kind of depends on how long it's been going on, how painful they are at the time. Um, I'm making my best educated guess on how much I think is muscle guarding and how much I think is, is structural, which I know that there's no valid way to do that. But anecdotally, um, kind of doing some, 
some contract relax type stretching of the shoulder seems to be able to tell me a little bit more. Maybe if, if some of it's protective guarding, once they feel really comfortable with that or having them go through um, some unweighted or some really, really easy eccentric contractions into their in range to see if they can go a little bit further than I could passively ranging them. Uh, and, and I've been, I've been using a, a mirror a lot lately, actually kind of a, a component of the GMI approach, the mirror therapy to and Adrian Lowe just put out a study, I think a couple of months ago, looking at repeated shoulder flexion of the contralateral side or the non-involved side in the mirror to, to see a pretty rapid increase in, in range of motion, like 15 or 17 degrees after 10 repetitions of shoulder flexion with a mirror, right? So you, you see that very quickly that there's some neurological underlying aspects with the condition. So again, I'm getting way off topic, but, but I don't give anybody a hard line number. I, I kind of tell them that based on the stage that they're at and how long they've been dealing with, it kind of sets the groundwork for what we can shoot for. I think that's great. It, it gives them a little bit of like, they're looking for a number and you kind of give it to yeah. them. You give them like a little bit of the data that we know and you give them a range, but then you very quickly kind of redirect to some to milestones that we have to hit. I like that. I think that, you know, some, that would be, people would, would respond to that favorably. They would, you know, think that that's a, that's a reasonable expectation. Mike, what are your thoughts on the process? Just kind of that initial educational moment where you're setting the stage. Yeah. I, I kind of look at it. It sounds very similar to, to Jared is just small victories over time. So it's like, what do you feel like you can't currently do and how can we best get you there? And, you know, um, it's all about the difficulty and complexity of the movement or the intensity you want to do things. So if you're just wanting to put a book on the top of a shelf or like Jared said, a glass on a high shelf, probably can get decent improvement in that in a couple of weeks. But if you're wanting to be max effort pressing body weight overhead, probably going to need a little bit more time, you know. And so it's just saying that expectation that there is no hard line on this. And the best we can do is just give some suggestions. But let's frame this from the standpoint of, Let's have small victories over time and then look back on the things we weren't able to do and now we're able to accomplish. And, and that usually kind of helps frame it out for people. Jared, you touched on some of the initial exercises. Is that kind of the stage is active range of motion, some isometrics, some active isometrics, and then moving that through some isotonics, increase, increase the load to tolerance. I mean, it's probably very similar to every other rehab protocol that you would think of kind of layering on that stressor. Is that generally the basis? I mean, yeah, uh, to a T. Uh, I feel like exercise for patients of various conditions is obviously really complex, but it's also really simple at the same time. It's, it's gradual graded exposure. It's giving patients, you know, a high degree of internal locus of control and kind of building up their self-efficacy and getting them independent. Uh, I, I definitely like to start early on with as much controlled eccentrics as I possibly can because I like that the fact that they're in control. Nobody's pushing them. They can go as far as they want. They can use the weight that they want. You know, if they can only use a one-pound dumbbell, hey, that's okay. If you could use a five-pound dumbbell, even better if you feel like you have control and you get a good stretch with that. But what it what it takes out is the the component of underlying fear that somebody else has their hands on your painful shoulder and they're about to crank it past where you want or where they want them to crank it. Right. So I like to use control eccentrics to, uh, to see if I can get them into a greater range of motion. And even when I take measurements on people to show them their progress, I don't passively measure them. I, I have them lay down and do, you know, with a dumbbell overhead, slowly lowering it into shoulder flexion to see where they can get to, um, under their own control and, and with their own level of comfort. Uh, and then if somebody's really lit up and they have super minimal range of motion, you know, I've had a couple of people that max shoulder flexion is 45, 50 degrees, max abduction is 35, 40 degrees, zero external rotation. I've had some really, really, really frozen shoulders over the years. I don't, I don't know how I end up with all these on my caseload, but I think I have like six on my caseload right now, which is somewhat I guess, un abnormal, but maybe it's because I live in Texas and we all have metabolic syndrome and, <laughs> and, that, and that sort of thing. Um, 
But yeah, I'm going to use a lot of isometrics to, to hopefully try to modulate their pain if it seems reasonable for them, but also just to let them know, hey, we can't really move your arm right now, so we can't strengthen it. The last thing we want is for your shoulder musculature, your rotator cuff to get super weak while you're immobilized. So I kind of let them know that strengthening as much as possible is while, while it might not be easy right now and they might not feel like they can do a lot, it's, it's essential for their shoulder health and function in the future once they get to the point where they're not self-immobilized by the contracture or the muscular guarding of their shoulder. So what you're saying is you're not over there with a mallet and a chisel hitting on the top of their shoulder trying to improve range of motion. Maybe I misheard you though. Maybe you do that. <laughs> well, it, it, that's stage two, okay? But you got to oh. pay. You, you've got to pay for the certification for me to tell you about that. It figures. There's always a catch. I mean, a mallet and a chisel might actually do something. <laughs> I mean, this is an actual thing. What like, I get about? sent weird oh, video. I get sent weird videos all the time. I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. All right. Well, you guys, you guys get tagged in that stuff too. People yeah. are always like, "Oh yeah, yeah." At, at, at Jared Hall, what do you think about this? And I'm just like, God, thoughts, I can't do this again. Yeah, thoughts? Question mark. <laughs> yeah. Lots of, <laughs> Lots of them. Well, and and so. Exercise, therapeutic exercise, because we can start to segue into this pain discussion because it sounds like the re- the reality is that it's this is going to be an uncomfortable process. And we could probably extrapolate this to a lot of things like tendinopathy, other chronic pain patterns where we now have a conditioned response to that pain and the pain doesn't necessarily correlate to the damage done or the function. So is that part of your education as well? Like these exercises are not necessarily there to address you. They're not treating your pain. Your, your pain is a separate thing. What we're trying to do is, is increase your confidence with these positions or these activities and, and your tolerance to these positions and activities. Are you making a differentiation there between the therapy exercise and, and pain treatment? Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> I'm just trying to track with you, and I was like, I'm, I'm losing it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm, I kind of lost it a little bit too, but I'll, I'll see if I can. I'll see if I picked up on it. Um, I mean, I think that it's relevant to recognize in true adhesive capsulitis there is a real inflammatory process, and it probably hurts like a son of a bitch because there's probably a boatload of nociception going on. But I do make a strong case to let people know that there's nothing damaged within their shoulder. And it's just a little bit sore right now. It, it's it's really irritated because they have a little bit of that inflammatory process going on, but it's no big deal. It's nothing that they have to be concerned about. A little bit of pain is completely okay. We usually set, you know, their self, their their NPRS at or their, their pain rating at whatever they feel comfortable with. If there's somebody that feels comfortable pushing up to a five or a six out of 10 per their scale, and it doesn't seem to make them too sore tomorrow, the next day, I'm like, Hey, cool, man. You know, you can go into as much pain as you feel comfortable as long as it doesn't make a dramatic impact on the way that your shoulder feels tomorrow and that your range of motion doesn't seem to be dramatically worse tomorrow because you've facilitated a ton of muscle guarding because you've just been, uh, really ramming into something that was, that was not having it. But if somebody is super pain averse and, you know, any, any, uh, any pain at all really makes them not want to do the exercise, that's a different conversation. I have to sit down and, and really explain to them why it's relevant. And if they, they can't, they can't push into that just a little bit in, in, in a reasonable manner that it might slow down their process. So I, I try to normalize pain for most people because I don't, I, th- I think that if we if we go down the pathway of saying you can never have any pain during any exercise in any rehab or anything, it makes people fearful of pain because pain is wrong and pain is bad rather than pain is protection or pain is, you know, just something to try to get you to pay attention rather than uh, it, it being negative, it being tissue damage. So I try to make that distinction pretty much immediately. And I, I don't want to necessarily say that I'm using these exercises to treat your pain and I'm using these exercises to treat your shoulder. I just want to say we're using all of this approach to try to improve your shoulder health. And as you do more and more over time, your shoulder is going to become more resilient and it's going to feel a lot better and it's not going to bug you anymore. So I I try to simplify as much as I possibly can to patients. Mike, you have thoughts on that? 
kind of pain discussion? Um, it would be almost uh, pretty much an echo chamber. Like I say, very similar things, set the expectation early on. Like I was saying previously, this is going to be uncomfortable, but your tolerance level is up to you. Um, I often say like on the arbitrary pain scale, you decide how much you're willing to push it, but it shouldn't be debilitating afterwards. So you should be a tolerance level that you feel like you're accomplishing something, but when you're done, you're not wrecked for the rest of the day or into the next day. So I use heuristics like that. And then I say, you know, if you get done with the session and, and I kind of, you know, obviously take this from like tendinopathy protocols and it's lasting for 24 hours afterwards, we probably did a little bit too much, but it's nothing to fret about. We just get back on track. So I can even set the expectation that if we do get a little derailed, that's also just part of the process and it's nothing to freak out about. I'm very similar. Um, I'm usually saying, uh, you know, move through. I don't give a number, you know, I'm not like, okay, five is our scale, um, necessarily because it's so, it's so subjective, but it's them moving through, moving through a range without attempting to avoid the feeling. Say that feeling is going to be there, but if you can move through it without apprehension or trying to avoid the position because of it, then you know, whatever that falls on the zero to 10 scale, I'm okay with that. Um, and I think Jared, you made a good point. You know, if, if we educate them, if we're saying, okay, the goal is no pain with exercise, that's immediate failure because they can't even move their arm five degrees without exercise. They can't, the shoulder's hurting the entire time. So there, there has to be that set right off the bat that, you know, you're, you're feeling the initial goal for me is increased function and pain sensitivity maybe like levels off. It like maintains. But if you're able to do more with the same amount of pain, to me, that's victory number one. The expectation and the hope is that over time you desensitize and, and function and, and tolerance continues to improve. But, you know, it's, it's kind of that, like, I don't even want to say stair step, but, you know, kind of that undulating up and down, up and down. The overall trend line is up, but you're going to have fluctuation within that. Um, is, yeah. So, Sounds like we're all just saying the same shit. This is boring. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, guys. Stop agreeing with me. I mean, I, I like that when that happens, though, like to a point, obviously, it's fun to be challenged, too. But it kind of means if we're all looking at the research and coming to similar, similar conclusions, we're probably on the right path. Well, I think it just sets up a more realistic road for the patient. It's just, you know, if they can buy into a process in the beginning, I think that's just huge. And, and from then on... I think it's things are smooth sailing because they're going to go, they're going to run into issues. And I'm sure you guys experienced this. They're really excited on day one. They're like, yeah, yeah, no, I completely understand. You're saying like pain is okay. And they're like, I'm cool with that. And then they have a pain exacerbation and they're like, oh, fuck, I need to go to the back of the, the hospital. You know, <laughs> what is happening? And yeah. like, okay, so yeah. we talked about this. You remember the conversation that we had and you can, it's way easier to talk them off the ledge because you've already had the conversation. They're like, oh, okay, now, now they know what you mean because they're experiencing it firsthand. But if you don't set that expectation up front, that experience has a way more, potentially way more negative effect and it just kind of slows the, the process then. Yep. Well, yeah, I mean, and talk about the contextual, the positive contextual effects of when they have that first flare up and you say, hey, you remember on day one, literally the first day that you walked in here when I told you this was probably going to happen at some point and to be ready for it. And I'm already here to to kind of comfort you and, and, and to, to get your mind right and get you back on track. They're like, shit, this guy does know what he's talking about. All right, I have some good confidence in him. Let's get back on the path. Yeah, it's a big therapeutic alliance builder. What do you see, and this can this can be general, not necessarily specific to adhesive capsulitis, but in regards to education, what can work against us? You know, what are some of those things that we don't necessarily want to say to the patient in that initial process or maybe even throughout that would maybe foster a nocebo effect? Oh, my God, dude. Yeah. Almost, every, almost everything. everything. Yeah. <laughs> everything that we say. I don't know if we got time for this list. <laughs> everything that we say, the vast majority of things that were taught in kind of classes in school and all that. So, you know, we're just the language. Clinical practice, on average, hasn't caught up yet with where the research is saying we should be regarding language and patient interaction. You know, it's just we want it to be there. Like those of us that are reading the research all the time, I can't open up my damn Instagram without seeing Mike posting a new article that I'm like, shit, I need to put that on my reading list. <laughs> 
uh, you know, those, those of us that are really trying super hard to stay abreast on, you know, and stay on top of all this, it, it, it feels like we're spinning our wheels because we get pissed off because not everybody else is doing it or it hasn't caught up yet, but it's getting a lot better when you got people like, you know, Ben Darlow and, and Benedetti putting out the research regarding language and placebo and nocebo and that sort of stuff that, that they're putting out. Um, it gives me a lot of confidence. It gives me a lot of hope that we're going to hit a threshold where there's a big change, but you know, I want to avoid anything and everything that turns a patient's locus of control external rather than internal. And, and I want to avoid anything that makes a patient feel like the condition that they're in has a, a permanence to it, like a structural permanence that, that that's mechanical in nature or biomedical in nature. I don't use the terms torn rotator cuff. I don't use the terms osteoarthritis. I don't use the term, you know, torn or degenerated or whatever. I, I go to this, this, this thing might be a little bit pissed off or your body is trying to protect you because it's a little bit irritated or, you know, you might have the equivalent of a bruise or a blister right now, and that's going to heal up and you're going to become stronger for it because you, you know, you're going to build a callus on, on that irritated structure and it's going to be more robust in the future. Right? So everything has to be a positive spin about the body's adaptive capacity rather than a negative spin about how there's some sort of structural derangement. So what you're saying is, is clinical practice is 10 years behind the research rather than the research is 10 years behind <laughs> clinical. It's weird how that works. No, you got that backwards. <laughs> you got that backwards. Well, you guys just haven't caught up to me yet um, uh, because can, I just know. I just know. Follow me around the <laughs> clinic room. You'll yes. see. Would you like to come see? <laughs> no, I, I just I, know. I think that's great. I was actually going to ask you, do you even use the word frozen shoulder? Because does that have so, a negative connotation to it? That's funny. I've actually, it, it, it's super informal. I don't have IRB uh, approval or anything like that. But right now I have a running list of asking every single patient who has adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder, how they feel about that term. I just say, Hey, you know, what do you think about this whole term frozen shoulder or adhesive capsulitis? Like, what does that make you feel? Do you, does that seem like a good term or would you rather it be called stiff shoulder syndrome or something like that? And it's honestly about 50, 50, 50% of patients are like, man, that like frozen shoulder sounds really shitty. It just sounds like my shoulder is stuck and it's going to be frozen forever. And you know, it's like, I just think of this big ice block on my shoulder limiting my motion and I don't like cold and cold makes my cold makes me hurt. I used to have to ice my ankles after football games and that was the worst thing ever. Like this is literal stuff that people have told me. And I'm just like, whoa. And, and they're like, yeah, I like, I like just that my shoulder is stiff and that we're going to loosen it up over time rather than some kind of negative nocebic sounding term like frozen shoulder and adhesive capsulitis. Adhesive sounds, sounds bad too. It's such a confusing phrase too, like adhesive capsulitis. Like you say it to someone and I just want to be like, what do you think I said? Like, what does that mean to you? Because I don't even know what it means. No, it sounds gnarly. And I, it's like, it sounds, and it also sounds complicated. So, oh, let's dumb it down and say frozen shoulder because that's right. better. People know what I say. <laughs> so there we go. Right. Yeah. I, I'm with you guys. It's like your shoulder doesn't move. All right. Well, we're going to try to get it to move better. And that's going to take yeah. it. That's, we're going to do that for the next however long. <laughs> and that's, and that's it. You have a diagnosis of a shoulder that doesn't move like it used to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just say, yeah, you've got a, you've got a stiff shoulder. We're going to work on that. It normally takes this long to get this stiff shoulder better. Like, all right, cool. Let's let's run with that. Yeah, and a lot of people just don't even care. Like, they're not going to care on the etiology of it. it it's just going to be this complex topic. It's like that all sounds great, Doc, but how do I get to do what I want to do again? Well, and, and I I straight up ask people, do would you like to know more about you know the nitty gritty details of this, or do you just want to get your shoulder better? Yeah. And, you know, some people are like, yeah, man, I like want to know what's going on here. That stuff sounds really cool. I'd be interested to know what's going on with my shoulder. And other people are like, man, I don't care. Let's talk about golf. Let's talk about, you know, what the what the Rangers are doing on TV. I don't just tell me what exercises I have to do, when I have to do them, how many I have to do. And I, we'll get this better. Yeah. So I, I make it patient, patient preference on that. Well, and I think the, the faster you can get to that, the better anyway, even if it's a patient who wants to know the nitty gritty about the diagnosis, because we know so little about it, 
If you're having a 30-minute conversation about the diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis, chances are you started yeah. making stuff up after the three-minute mark. <laughs> yeah, because and now you're just drawing hypervigilance to a, a tissue issue that we don't really fully understand at all ourselves. Totally. That took me a long, and not just with this diagnosis, but in diagnoses in general that we don't know a whole lot about, which is pretty much all of them. When I, when I say those things, I was like, as a younger clinician and a student, very uncomfortable with that. You know, it's like this person's not going to know or going to think that I don't know what I'm talking about because I don't actually know how to explain this thing. But now I'm confident in not being able to explain it because nobody can really explain it. And I feel, I feel a lot better about that. So if there's any students that are, that are listening here, don't worry. We're all, we're all dumb. You're not alone. <laughs> no, none of us know anything about it, and it's it's very rare that a patient really cares. I, I put out a I put out a little bit of an infographic a, a few weeks ago that I caught some fire for because I had uh, I had two circles, one like a green circle, and one was a red circle. Now, like in the red circle, it was like, don't worry about this shit because most patients don't care, and it was all about like neurotransmitters and ion channels, and you know nociceptors and and, and and spinal pathways and periaqueductal gray matters and, and things like that. And on the green circle, it was like, talk about what people care about. People want to know that you care about them and people want to know how long this is going to take. And people want to know that you, you can help them and, and that you can help them reach their goals. And that they want to hear positive stuff and they want to know about relevance. And I caught a lot of fire because people were like, well, I explain all of this neurobiology to my patients and they're super interested in it. And all of my patients want to know all about it. And I'm so great because I explain, you know, ion channels. And I'm like, are you really that great? Or did they glaze over 15 minutes, <laughs> you know, 15 minutes ago while you were still talking or is it? And sure, you know, there's, there's one patient out of 10 that are two patients out of 10 that really love to hear that stuff. But the vast majority of, of people either were, were making up bullshit or, they, they probably it's irrelevant and it could even be driving more, more hypervigilance. Yeah, I agree. Yep. I, even if they are interested in it, they are not interested in it very long. Like if you, you can easily just redirect the conversation if, if you wanted to, I think it's, it's probably one of those more of we're padding our own ego by telling the patient how much we know, you know, kind of like, yeah some fancy treatments that we can do. It's like, oh, I feel good about myself after I told him all of that. And he's walking out the door with less tools to manage this thing because that was time that could have been better spent. Like you said, Jared, you know, increasing the internal locus of control and self-efficacy. Anything that in regards to adhesive capsulitis or really even the, the pain neuroscience conversation in general that would kind of preface the webinars coming up Well, you know, I mean, we, we touched on quite a lot of stuff that, that you're going to hear, and I'm going to go into a little bit more detail and a little bit more depth and actually have have some of the, the citations and, and expanded information for regarding adhesive capsulitis, uh, regarding pain, neuro edu pain neuroscience education. I mean, I, the biggest thing that I could possibly say is that we have to stop making, you know, quote unquote, pain science an intervention where we think that it's this tool that we whip out of our, our tool bag to, to pain science somebody or to pain neuroscience somebody. It's like this should be a constant conversation, and it should be the way that you run your clinic. It should be the way that you interact with your patients. It should be how you talk to your mom. It should be how you talk to your friends. It should be how you interact with everybody because it's just the reflection of our best current evidence of the understanding of pain and in implementing that understanding into clinical practice where it permeates manual therapy, where it permeates exercise, where it permeates anything and everything that we do with people. It's, it's not like this standalone intervention that we treat down at people with and le lecture at them with. That's so funny that you mentioned that. That's one of my biggest pet peeves is pain science as a dichotomy. Uh, I have a student that I correspond with regularly and I'll get texts like, my CI told me today that this is a pain science patient as opposed to oh, like uh, whatever, as, whatever that means uh, <laughs> as opposed to a biomechanics patient. And then there was this, this synonymous pain science with affective disorder. Not all our patients are affective disorder and therefore not all our patients are pain science patients, whatever that I, I feel like it's the order of the words. I think that if we said the science of pain, 
people would say, oh, the science of pain. So anybody that's in pain, and if we are addressing their pain in any capacity with any type of treatment, that is pain science, which is basically everybody that's coming in the door. It's not this dichotomy. Yeah. Where, where we are doing pain science every single time, no matter what. It may just be a poorly constructed paradigm, but it's, yeah, it's, it, I'm just glad. <laughs> yeah, you, well, <laughs> go, Mike. People have been doing pain science well before um, this was a, a like a movement, so to speak. It was just under the guise of biomedical like lens. You were still talking about pain with people. You were just talking about drivers in a different manner. So it's not like we haven't been doing this. We've been just fucking it up for a long time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I guess one of one of my biggest kind of pet peeves is the automatic dichotomization between this like psychosocially driven chronic pain person and acute pain as if these types of pain as is as if pain is completely different between people it's like no it's yep. it's still the experience of pain their 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 system is still trying to protect them in some way because it perceives threat and it has some degree of fear whether that's driven by acute tissue damage or whether that's driven by systemic changes in neuroendocrine function or whether that's driven by cognitive changes and and changes in the the structure of the gray and white matter of the brain hell hell we don't know and we we can't tell by ex examining somebody we can we can get a good idea of factors that maybe seem to be playing in and that we know are correlated with the experience of pain but to dichotomize these into two different types of pain really annoys the hell out of me because we can only we can only look at drivers to the experience or what leads to the possible experience of pain not well, this is an acute pain person and this is a chronic pain person and their types of pain are different and they experience that pain differently as if it's two totally different things. I think what we'll have to see is a transition in how it's being researched as well because that's also how it's unfortunately defined in a lot of research articles is it's being dichotomized out. And I don't think that's with everyone that's doing the research, but I think the like broad frame, it, it, it's being defined that way, unfortunately. And so until we have new ways of defining things, it's, it's probably going to take some time to change that. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely hate when somebody gets to day number 91 when they have acute pain and they... Right. They, they, they it just, just, that's it. That's the cutoff, Jared. <laughs> you had 90 days. You fucked up now. It's it's moving on to chronic. Well, now they're... Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Yeah. If, uh, so, so, so my uh, ultrasound didn't work for the first 90 days, but now that you're at day 91, let's sit down and let me tell you about neurobiology. Right, right. Yeah, moral of the story, pain science is not a treatment. You don't have pain science patients. Let's, let's get away from that. Jared, webinars coming up. So if, if people want, we got two, if people want details to that, clinicalathlete.com slash events, uh, where can people connect with you? Um, yeah, I'm pretty loud on social media. I'm on, uh, I'm on Facebook. I have a professional page. I think it's something like Dr. Jared Hall, PTDPT or something like that, uh, where I post a lot of information. I had to kind of get away from the, the personal Facebook page because I was getting too many weird random friend requests and stuff like that. <laughs> like sex bots and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, I think, um, on Instagram, I'm pretty active on Instagram as well. That's, uh, at Dr. Jared Hall, DPT.com. And I'm, I'm also associated with, uh, modern pain care. And that's with Mark Cargola. We, we run a, a virtual mentorship through there that we just, we kind of launched this year and it seems to be going pretty well. It's, it's a nice 12 to 16 week deep dive into all things, all things pain, really. And it's, it's been pretty fun so far. You also have a, a book out recently, right, Jared? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, hey, thanks. I appreciate that. I forgot about it. Um, the uh, I wrote a book called Me and a, a Guy Named Jim Hefner, who's a physical therapist up in Boulder, Colorado, who's uh, um, pretty active as well. He runs Hefner Health, which is a cash-based physical therapy clinic where he kind of focuses on athletes and, and uses a lot of yoga as well. We wrote a book called Sticks and Stones. And it's kind of a, a grouping of stories and analogies to help people explain pain simply. So the book is set up with an intro that kind of talks about some of the nitty gritty of pain, but it doesn't get into too much detail. So it's, it's still easily uh, consumable by the average person. And then there's about 50 different stories or analogies to either explain 
some of the ways in which pain seems to be experienced, uh, graded exposure, kind of contextual effects and how that can impact the experience of pain. So, so the idea was, was make a book that's really easy to consume for patients with lots of, you know, cool, fun pictures and that clinicians can actually sit down with patients and say, Hey, look, these other guys somewhere down the road, you know, it, it always seems better or smarter coming from that person you don't know, you know, the distant expert, right? Yeah. So I, I like before I, I pull up Greg Lehman stuff all the time, or I'll pull up Lorimer Mosley or David Butler. And I'm like, Hey, look, these guys are super smart and they wrote all about this stuff. It's not coming from me. It's coming from this, you know, world renowned third party source. So we wanted somebody to be able to pull out this book and sit down with patients and tell them a story or read it themselves and internalize a bunch of stories and different ways to explain things that, that aren't biomedical and, and they're a little bit more fun and easily digestible for people. Nice. That's awesome, man. Those are great resources. Everybody check that stuff out and check out the two web webinars coming up. Uh, one note that our usual co-host Derek Miles has missed the last few shows. We're all still friends, people. He's <laughs> too busy being fancy at Stanford and sometimes we are still schedules can align with the time zone. So, Derek will join us again very, very soon. Uh, Jared, thanks so much for being on, man. That was awesome. I'm really looking forward to the, to the webinars and, uh, we'll have to get you back on sometime soon. Hey, man. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate the invite and thanks for taking the time to jump on here with me, guys. Absolutely. Yeah, enjoyed it, man. Yeah. Thanks for joining us as usual. And thanks everybody for listening. All six of you. Five. Jared's uh -huh. here. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs>